fall. We, we went through Romans 14. The issue there was how Christians get along. And um, the idea of the, the weak judging the strong and the strong judging the weak. And there being this conflict because of um, differing ideas about what it means to walk faithfully uh, in, your, in your walk with Jesus Christ. So there's, there's these things that, um, that come up, at least according to Romans 14, and he <clears throat> mentions two or three of them. He mentions um, holy days. He mentioned the consumption of wine. Um, he mentions some things that, that um, eating meat sacrificed to idols. All of those things caused friction amongst Christians because some viewed it one way and the others viewed it another, you know. So the whole issue of legalism, um, the the uh, the strong, the, the weak, or the uh, the ones who had had this Jewish background who came into the Christian church, um, brought all these legal tendencies with them, and then of course the Gentiles who came to Christ, they brought all these uh, libertine ideas, and so there was this conflict. And so what 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 I said to you is the whole idea of legalism is alive and well in the church. Um, and, and maybe in the north of our country, uh, the, the, the issue that's the problem is uh, libertarianism or living uh, uh, with absolutely no rules. But in the south, the problem is that there is a, there's a, uh, there is a legalism that has seeped into the Christian church. And I think, as I said last week, it is a real threat it is a real complication when it comes to um, grace. I think legalism damages grace. So it's not so much my purpose to attack legalism, although that's what I'm doing. My, my real, I mean, that's my penultimate goal. My ultimate goal is to establish the beauties and excellencies of pure grace. And to do that, you've got to understand some of these, these issues that kind of uh, subtract from and undercut just the beauties of a gospel of pure grace. And so to do that, we've turned to Mark chapter 7. It's a passage where Jesus takes on the legalism of his day. Um, it is a passage that, as I said last week, one commentarian called it the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. There is something contained in Mark chapter 7, which we're going to look at tonight, that is mentioned no place else in the New Testament. We'll, we'll take a look at it. But um, it is Jesus' attack, and he does it several times, but this is the, 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 um, the most poignant, in my mind, is Mark chapter 7. And so tonight, I, I just want to read you the first 13 verses again, and then we're going to kind of jump around in, 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 um, in this text, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. So you follow as I read. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other uh, traditions uh, that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and uh, dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Now, guys, um, the example that Jesus uses in his confrontation with the Pharisees is something known as Corban. Corban is mentioned here in Mark chapter 7. It is mentioned no place else in the New Testament. But it is simply an illustration that that Jesus is using to, to attack a position held widely by Judaism and Pharisees in particular. Um, he gives you a bit of an explanation of what Corban is. And if I may be so audacious, I'd like to just <clears throat> add a bit of a word of explanation to his explanation concerning Corban. But look at, he, he explains it in verses 10 and 11. This is what Corban is. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother, you must surely... But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you could have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Now, just to try to explain this little thing called Corban, guys, stay with me for this. Um, Every Jew understood that the fifth commandment, that is, honor your father and your mother... Um, every Jew understood that that meant that they were going to be asked to take care of aging parents. But there was a scribal tradition that offered a way for a um, well-intentioned Jew to get around the fifth commandment, which was simply to say about his possessions, Corban, whatever I could have used to help you out in your... um, your aging years, I have pronounced Corban, which meant that it was dedicated to God. And therefore, he was, um, he was not then required to take care of parents' needs as they aged. And interestingly, um, if, if a man were to declare his possessions Corban, even in a fit of anger, even in a fit of rage... He was, he was still required to keep that vow because, according to scribal tradition, it was more important for you to keep your vow than it was for you to obey the fifth commandment. Now, all of this, again, as I said, is according to scribal tradition. Now, guys, here's the first point I want you to see. Um, this amazing twisting of God's word by people who, who had a respect for this word. Um, those who are trying to justify themselves by the law, which is what a legalist does, they end up modifying the law in order to escape its authority. 
That's what, it, that's what the Pharisees have done. These are people who say they have a respect for this book. But they've developed a system. And in their so doing, in their trying to justify themselves by their, their obediences, what they end up doing is modifying the law of God, the real thing, in an attempt to escape obedience to it. They find a way to do what they want to do and still be considered holy. Now, now guys, the, the, again, the illustration that he's using here, and, and by the way, he says many such things you do. There's more illustrations that he could have used. But the one that he uses is the scribal tradition known as Korban. What I want to show you tonight is the, is the things out of this text. The things that, <laughs> that legalism ultimately does, ladies and gentlemen. What, 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 it, what it's really up to and what it really ultimately accomplishes. Now, gang, first of all, remember last week I told you that legalism can be used in two different, two different ways. You can use it as a, um, in a non-Christian way to deny the doctrine of justification because you're saying that I can be saved by obedience. But you can also use it to overturn the doctrine of sanctification. And that's what you find in the church in the South. Um, a, a, um, <laughs> a subtle substitution of human scribal tradition, the end result being... People look good, but they've overturned the real law of God. Now, guys, you notice, I hope, when I read this 13 verses, the, rep- the repetition of the word tradition. Now, now, gang, that's another word that can be used variously. You can use it, uh, you could say, well, they have a traditional worship service. Well, is that good or bad? Well, that depends on the, uh, the, the person's preferences. Or you can say, Procter & Gamble has a tradition of corporate success. Um, It's it's a very positive word. But today, it seems that the generations below mine um, have learned to just have a disgust for anything that is tradition. I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, it is the arrogance of youth that says that everything that is old is bad. And that because of evolutionary advance, we've got to improve on it by altering it in a way that we think best. But that said, that is not the way that Jesus is using the word in Mark chapter 7. That is not the way he is using the word tradition. He is talking about a, a group of incrustations that have gathered around the scriptures in addition to them that ultimately supplanted them. Gang, um, you can see this. I mean, he gives you a little bit of a definition of what he means by tradition. Look at verse 7. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is what he's pointing at when he uses the word tradition. These doctrines and or these commandments of men. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of legalism among Christians. They adopt 
a tradition that is authored and created by church leadership and ultimately that tradition ends up supplanting, substituting for the real thing. Now, guys, let, let me show you what he says. Um, l- look at what he says in um, verse 13. After he's attacked them and called them a couple of names, he says this. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition. Uh, some of your translations will use the word nullify. Now think about that, ladies and gentlemen. That in amongst people who say they are eager to honor the God who made them, by these, these traditions that they have created, what they end up doing, one of the things that they end up doing is making void the Word of God. Can you imagine that? (laughs) That men have come to the place where they feel like they have got more insight, and as a result of their insight, they have voided. And the illustration that he uses here is Corban. Corban, in essence, nullified the fifth commandment And it was a scribal tradition that was designed to make people appear holy. When in fact, the result was they made void. They nullified the very truth that God had given them by their traditions. And he closes off by saying, and many such things you do. You know, guys, um, I get bent out of shape over stuff like this. Um, I've I've used several illustrations in the fall about out of Romans 14, but I tried to think of one that was not having to do with wine. You know, that's all we talked about in the in the fall was drinking wine. And I and I I don't want to use that one. But you know, <clears throat> you know that in some circles, now I don't know whether, I don't even know if they're in Memphis. Maybe there are. I can't imagine. But there are some religious circles where dancing is prohibited. Now, you've heard of that, haven't you? You know, you don't dance. You just can't dance. I know of a pastor. Well, I better not tell you that story. Um, <laughs> But you can't dance. Can't dance. Now, let me ask you. Let me, let me just show you the absurdity of all of this. Which dance? Can you ballet? Oh, yeah, well, you can do that one. But what about ballroom dance? Oh, no, you can't do that one. What do you mean you can't do that one and you can't do this one? Where did you get that? What, I mean, who, who gave you that? Well, I mean, we don't, we don't want any of that stuff. Now, 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 ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, 
I mean, we can, we can do that dance, but we can't do that dance. And who's in charge of telling you which one's right and which one's wrong? And, and on top of all that, do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, that there is a, is a scene in 2 Samuel 6 where the, the man that the scriptures call a man after God's own heart is dancing so wildly that his wife was disgusted with him and, you know, locked the bedroom door. But God, God's response to that dancing display was to curse her with barrenness and celebrate the worship that he saw on the part of David. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've just tried to give you an example of, by your tradition, what you end up doing is substituting some kind of commandment of men and you put it in the place of clear biblical injunction. That's what legalism does, ladies and gentlemen. That's how wicked it is. Now, but, but there's more. <laughs> not only does it nullify the word of God, which is terrifying to me to think that some kind of position that I could teach you from the pulpit would end up, the end result being to nullify a clear propositional statement on the part of the Heavenly Father? There's more. Because ultimately, guys, um, legalism fails miserably at the one thing that it's supposed to do. Legalism is supposed to encourage obedience. You know, guys, I, I'm going to use an example. We're back to alcohol. Um, but uh, I'm going to use an example, and it's a dangerous one. Because I, I mean, um, but I have in my files, um, it, I only have one, but I've, I've heard others alluded to, surveys that, that, sh, um, that sh demonstrate or that suggest that people raised in teetotaling denominations are three times more likely to become alcoholics. The very thing that it's trying to produce, it doesn't produce. It produces the opposite. Do you think that's true? Well, let me show you, ladies and gentlemen, where that very thing is taught in the New Testament. Would you turn, if you can find real fast, Romans chapter 7. We looked at this years ago, um, <laughs> um, right before Y2K, I think. Uh, but um, uh, Paul is talking about the, um, oh, the battle that's going on within him. <clears throat> and he makes a statement in Romans chapter 7 at verse 9. And he says this, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, look at this. Sin came alive, and I died. Do you know what the Apostle Paul has just told you there, ladies and gentlemen? 
There is a sense in which law gives life to disobedience and sin. Tell me, have you ever, have you ever come inside the house and you caught your kids doing something that they weren't, they were, they were throwing a ball in the, you know, around the television set. And um, you said, stop throwing that ball. And all of a sudden, in that depraved little heart of theirs, they have this giant urge to throw that blasted ball. Because when the commandment comes, sin comes alive. Ladies and gentlemen, the very thing that the legalist is trying to prevent, he is creating. He is giving rise to. You know, Susan and I used to say (laughs) that when our girls were dating, we were looking for a few legalists for them to date. Uh, if you've got a daughter, you'd like to have somebody that just is, uh, you know, scared to death of whatever. Um, but ultimately, guys, <clears throat> and, and, and the thing that legalism wants to produce is a thing that legalism cannot produce. i got to hurry. One more thing. As terrible as those two things are, that is, to nullify the Word of God... <clears throat> and to not produce the obedience that it says it was trying to produce. I think there's something in here that Jesus exposes that's more dreadful than those two. Guys, notice, this encounter with these legalists begins in verse 5. With the Pharisees observing that um, something that they concluded was a violation of... um, of ritual purity. They didn't wash their hands. Now, this is how it all started. They come to Jesus and they say, wait a minute. Why do your disciples violate the the traditions of the elders? Because everybody knows that you're supposed to wash your hands before you eat anything or whatever they were doing. Now, guys, so what you get here, (laughs) amazingly, is a group of men who rebuke Jesus by calling his attention to this one issue. You You can almost imagine the contempt in their faces. Well, you're disciples. Why, they don't, they don't, they don't obey the tradition of the elders. Why, you let your children dance. I mean, you're in violation of the tradition of the elders. Now, guys, I want you to see what Jesus' reply is to all of that. His reply is this. Verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I think many of you would agree with this, that um, 
that one of the biggest obstacles that people have with the gospel and the, and the church of Jesus Christ is what do they say? That the church is full of? Um, where do you think that, that attack came from? Let me give you an example. We say that we, that we stand for family values in the Christian church. And yet our divorce rate is as high as theirs. And they look at us and say, <laughs> I mean, I got problems, but I don't need that. Sure hadn't changed to you. Guys, do you know where the word hypocrite came from? Um, the, the Greek word is hypocrites. And it comes from Greek uh, drama. It comes from ancient Greek drama. And you've seen this before where the actors would have these, these, um, these masks and they'd hold up the, you know, the one mask that was you know, grinning and, and happy and, and he would quote his lines and, and the audience would laugh with the hilarity. You know, just, just so funny. And then he'd go backstage and he'd get another mask. And it would be frowning and sad and weepy and all. And then he'd come back and, and he'd, and he'd um, uh, quote his lines and, and the audience would weep with him. Do you know what they called that actor? They called him a hypocrites. He was the one that wore the masks. Ladies and gentlemen, if that shoe fits, would you do us all a favor? And would you put it on? Who are you? Who are you? Are you what you want us, the rest of us, to believe you are? Or are you something genuinely that belongs to Jesus Christ? Or... Do you find it more comfortable to live behind your pretense? You, ladies and gentlemen, are a hypocrite. I, I, I got to tell you this story. To me, this is, this is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It, I, it comes out of a book by Philip Yancey. Um, that's where I got this story. So if you want to check it out, you can. It's a, it's a story about Terry Muck. I know Terry Muck. Uh, he's written, he used to edit, uh, it would be the editor of uh, Leadership Magazine. He's, wrote a, he's written a book that, that I just love called um, uh, Well-Intentioned Dragons. Love, talked about dragons in the church. It's, it's just a great book. But anyway, as a part of his Fulbright scholarship um, or his Fulbright uh, fellowship, um, he studied Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka. And, um, you know, if you're a Buddhist monk, not a Buddhist, but a Buddhist monk, you have 212 rules that you are committed to obey, which Buddha um, gave you. Um, uh, now, they're outdated and impractical, but that doesn't matter. Buddha gave you tw- 212 rules, and um, uh, you're, as a monk, you're supposed to keep those 212 rules. And so Terry Muck uh, wondered, studied this, um, how these monks could reconcile their need to live in a modern world with the adherence that they had proclaimed to this ancient legalistic code given to them by Buddha. For example, um, a Buddhist monk was told that one of those 212, that he should never carry money. And so Terry 
following them around, observed them regularly paying fares on city buses. And so he got a group of these Buddhist monks aside, and he wants to ask them some questions. And so he says to them, Do you follow the 212 rules? He asked them. Yes. Do you handle money? Yes. Are you aware of the rule against money? Yes. Do you follow all the rules? Yes. How do you become that conflicted? How do you become, how do you get to the place where you fool yourself again and again and again? I'll tell you why or how. You've become comfortable living as a hypocrite. Ladies and gentlemen, I didn't introduce that word into this discussion. Jesus Christ did. There's nothing we would rather or hate to be called worse than being called a hypocrite. But I'm telling you guys, to keep certain traditions of men and to then conclude that makes me spiritual... One more example, maybe two. These 212 rules also forbade eating after noon, after the noon hour. Because the monks lived on handouts, and Buddha did not want his followers to burden housewives. So he made a rule, no eating after 12 o'clock. But modern monks got around that rule by stopping the clock at noon each day, and after their evening meal... They reset the clock to the correct time. You know, guys, um, it, it's, 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 it's comical. It's comical. What? I mean, because I've got to appear to be the Buddhist monk, you know, I've got to stop my clock so I can eat because I'm really hungry, you know. And that's, that's, That's gross hypocrisy. Boy, I sure am glad we don't have that in this church. Gang, um, if you tend to be a legalist, um, first of all, I can tell you, you're deluded. Not diluted, diluted. Because you think that some of this observance of human tradition means that you're a serious-minded, mature believer. And you're not. It's um, one of those sentences from that article that I read you last week from... uh, What's his name? What's his face? But anyway, he said, you're interested in innocence and not forgiveness. You're interested in appearing to be something when in fact you aren't. And the Christian, the Christian is interested in being forgiven. Because he knows his approval 
doesn't come from you. The approval that he wants, the Christian, is the approval that only Jesus can give him. The rest of this stuff is an assault on the doctrine of grace. My brother and sister in Christ, I, I just close. With, it's time for me to quit. But let me just, if, if, if this is something that, has, that you've wrestled with, go home tonight and just ask God to forgive you of all of this foolishness. Here's what we used to tell our kids. I don't know well, how well it worked. I, I'm, I really don't. And this is something you'll, I'm going to be using again and again and again. Here's the standard, ladies and gentlemen. You want an ethic? Here it is. You want something to write down? Write this down. Emulate Christ in the power of the Spirit. There it is. You want sanctification? Emulate Christ in the power of the Spirit. You want to know how to live for Jesus? Emulate Christ. In the... Grace of Anne is not the standard. Neither is Bellevue Baptist. Jesus is the standard, and the only way any of us will ever look anything like him is through the power of the indwelling spirit, not human tradition. Our Father, I I do pray that you will help us to be honest with ourselves, knowing that wearing a mask is not only damaging to us, it's damaging to the cause of Christ. Would you, um, would you help us to come to the place where we find great delight in taking off the masks and admitting in truth that we are far more wicked than we ever dreamed, and yet we take refuge in a gospel that tells us we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. In that, we lay our heads on a pillow tonight with great comfort knowing that our sin has been covered by an all-sufficient Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.